Greg, come on. Well, I'm glad to be able to be with all of you folks here at the warehouse. Uh, just uh, before I got the service began, I got to talk with a few of you, and I was so surprised that I, I don't know if I talked with anybody who had been here more than two or three times. Uh, how many of you have been here, let's just say, five times or fewer to the warehouse? How, or this year? Look at this. Well, we are really... Yeah. We are really glad that you are here. We'll hope you'll come back often. Uh, anybody been here five or more times? Uh, okay, 12 of us, 12 of us. Well, I'm Greg Waybright. I'm the senior pastor uh, of the church, and occasionally Pastor Albert gives me a chance to come in and talk with you here in the warehouse, and I'm glad for, for this opportunity. Actually, I wasn't planned to be here. Um, through this past week, I've been thinking so much about how lives of the followers of Jesus should be different in the world where God put us. And as I've been following the, um, uh, the election, the fall election process, I've been trying to ask, what on earth does that look like? Uh, because I've, I've come to see that when we become followers of Jesus, uh, he doesn't uh, kind of zap us out of this world into this uh, heavenly eternal family, but he leaves us here. And the, the, just the, the simple logical conclusion of that to me is that there must be some reason he does and some difference that our lives should make where he puts us. I don't know if you're a student of church history, but in spite of the fact that many followers of Jesus throughout history have sort of pulled away into kind of Christian-like ghettos, Jesus never had people do that. He would call people to himself, he would teach people, he would be invested in their mentoring and discipleship and growth, and then send us, send people right back out into the world, into all arenas of life, to live different kinds of lives there. And so I've been thinking and praying about what that might look like in the world where God has put us, uh, particularly with regard to the uh, political process. So I'm walking to a little bit of a sensitive area, but in spite of that, I think that what I want to talk to you about will have application to any place in life that God has put you. Uh, this morning, as I was talking about it, I talked with people who are in all arenas of life, judicial systems, the people involved in the media, uh, in the arts, in all sorts of different places. And, I, and I've been asking the question, what should be different about us in those places if we claim to be who we are, namely followers of Jesus? And one of the places that I find... The clearest teaching is in a sermon, of all places, but a sermon from Jesus found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and in one particular part of it, uh, Jesus, it's on the Sermon on the Mount. If you have a Bible, I'd want you to turn there. It's the first book in the New Testament. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, on this one particular day, a big festival day, uh, uh, is that what we have after this? Is it like a big feast? Uh, not quite a feast, a little, little feast, but a big feast in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee, uh, which was Jesus' home area. It's kind of the blue-collar area of that part, part of the world at that time. He uh, was there with his disciples. They were kind of ostracized by most people at the time. He pulls them away from the crowd, and he declares this to them. Now, you've heard it before, but somehow I've tried to think, how can we hear it again? Even those of you who haven't gone to church very often, I bet you've heard some of these words before. Just listen to what Jesus declares. I want you to hear now the word of Jesus found in this, the word of God. 
You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to be trampled on by the feet of people. And you are the light of the world. A city that's on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people take a lamp and hide it under a bushel. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everybody in the house. So, let your light so shine before people so that they may see your good deeds, but they will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And we'll remember this is the word of God. Now, I'll tell you, um, I think these are among the most shocking uh, words ever spoken, certainly among the most encouraging. And yet I'm guessing, uh, for, for those who have rarely gone to a kind of a gathering like this, words like, you're the salt of the earth, you probably heard that before, right? Probably talk, you say that about your grandmother, Albert? My grandma's the salt of the earth. We say that about people. You may have never known who said it. Or, or what it meant, but we've heard that phrase. And for those of us who go to church often, we hear it all the time. In fact, one of the difficulties of talking to you about a text like this is it's possible you've heard it so often that you just don't even notice it anymore. I, I'm praying that we'll hear it in a brand new way and then think about what difference it might make wherever God puts us in this world and on this earth. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask three simple questions. And then I'm going to stop for a few moments and meddle just a bit. Think about what it might say to us as we're involved as followers of Jesus in the political process. Then I'm going to stop and just try to help us think about it all in our individual lives. So, first question. When Jesus declares this, you are the salt, you are the light, who's he talking about? Who is this salt and light? Now, you've got to use your imagination. You cannot imagine being people who live in a country like the United States. Uh, or I've talked to the, nor Germany, nor Russia, nor any, or China, nor any of the big and powerful countries of the world. You can't expect that you've grown up in a place where people win Olympic medals, where you sing songs. I, I'm glad to be an American, where at least I know I'm free, because they weren't free. Uh, where where the, the the country where Jesus was preaching this sermon in Israel was under the oppression of the government of Rome. The point I'm trying to make is you wouldn't expect anything really to come out of these people. Uh, in most of the world, no one had ever heard of this country. It had no freedoms. It had no economic power. It didn't have the great leaders. Now, even within that small persecuted country, you belong as a follower of Jesus to a small minority group. You know, those people who had chosen to follow this Jesus had already been sort of cut off by the uh, powers that were in their little country. Uh, the political leaders wanted nothing to do with them. The religious leaders viewed Jesus with great suspicion. So you see what I'm getting at? That it, as, as you would come to a gathering like this or to that festival that they were in, you wouldn't expect much to be able to come out of your life. Uh, you wouldn't think that you could make much of a difference in the world. Now, on that particular day, Jesus does pull you and 11 others uh, up to this higher location. It was called the Sermon on the Mount. So a higher location where he begins talking with them. Here's the way I envision it. Jesus looks at that feast, those the people there at the festival, the crowds that were there, people that he had come to help, to forgive, and to whom he wanted to give hope, but they were ignoring him. Uh, maybe with his eyes of faith he could see all the people of his country, maybe even to Jerusalem, 
uh, people who would reject him and eventually put him to death. Uh, Maybe even with great faith, Jesus was able to see the larger mission that God the Father had sent him to accomplish. You know what Jesus said, that before I complete my mission, this good news of hope and salvation is going to go to the entire world. And eventually there will be people from every nation. Every language group, every ethnicity gathered who know God and say salvation belongs to him. Now, how on earth is he going to do it? Take it from that little small minority group within a persecuted country. Take it to the world. Well, with those eyes of faith, with that great vision, he now looks down to the 12 people in front of him to see what he has. And what does he have there in those 12 people? I'm telling you, he doesn't have much. He doesn't have not not in the way you and I usually look at people. Uh, These were not the powerful. These were not the educated. These were not the people that people say, well, obviously great things will happen through him. Who was around them? You know the followers of Jesus, the ones he chose? Four fishermen? Oh, yeah, there was one politician there, but he was a zealot and nobody listened to them. There was one wealthy man there, but he was a tax collector and everyone hated them. And to these people, see, I get way too emotional about this. To these people, the thing I want you to see, if he could do it through these people, what should happen through a group like gathered here in the warehouse? To these unlikely people, he declares this, you, and it's emphatic in in the original language, you, you, as if they would miss it, you are the salt of this whole earth, and you are the light of the world. Now, the sermon was preached in the first century. Uh, It was before they had refrigeration. Uh, salt was used for so many things probably the main thing to preserve food so I'm telling you for them salt was gold Uh, this morning I had a a group of people some from Egypt and some from Jordan who were simply traveling here and afterwards they came up and talked to us and said in some of our tribal communities we still pack food and salt so that we can have something to eat for our families we know what the value of that is that's what the value of that was to them you are the light of the world in in a world without electricity So that when people were trying to travel, especially when it become dark, you know the value of light. It helps us to see how the God of the Bible uh, sees uh, the world. Uh, The Bible consistently tells us that God loves the people of this world. Do you know that? It's one of the things you and I always have to keep in mind, even when people irritate the life out of us. We've got to see people as people that God loves. God loves the world, but he sees that this world is a world that is deteriorating on its own and needs salt. We know that's true. When God looks at the world, he sees a world that he loves, but a world that is in darkness. And it's something I've experienced as I've gotten to know so many people. When I lived in Chicago, I used to play tennis every Thursday night with these Chicago attorneys. I'll tell you, they were trying to live a good life. Sometimes, I think, sometimes they were. But, but it seemed like every decision they made only would get them in more and more of a wrong direction. Good people wanting to do what was good, but in darkness and needing light. It is a world that needs salt. And it's a world that needs light. What does a loving God do for a world that's deteriorating into darkness? He does so many things. But the main thing that he has chosen to do is to draw a family together from every tribe and language and nation out of this world offer forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, offer himself to people, and then instead of just isolating this group from the rest of the world, he sends his family members back into all arenas of life to speak of the hope that is available and to be salt and light in those places. And I'll tell you, it takes remarkable vision to think 
that anything could happen through this group of people to whom Jesus was speaking. But amazingly, here we are, two millennia since Jesus said it, and in all places, 21st century Southern California, in a gathering in which we know the message has reached to us. You are the salt of the earth. The work of God happening through people who in the eyes of the world really are less than ordinary. So uh, the question, the first simple question, who is the salt and light Jesus is talking about? Eh, What is the answer? Uh, Fellow followers of Jesus, we are to look in the mirror through imperfect people who have come in faith to Christ being sent back into this world to make a difference. Uh, We need to hear the words of Jesus coming to us this evening. You, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Now my second question. How on earth is God going to change the world through people like this? What what scheme, what strategy would he ever use? Now you know in the the jobs that I have been in, especially in the last uh, 20 years of my life, I've read all of these books about leadership and, and management. You can go to any bookstore and pull them up. And you know, essentially, I thought if we just boil it right down, what would they tell me to do? If I had a a big mission that I had to fulfill, they would tell me, start with a resource assessment. What do you have? Then begin with the end in mind. You've got to get here. These are the resources I have to get here and try to develop a strategic plan to be able to get from where you are to that place. Now, I'm not against this. But I want you to see that really the way that Jesus proposes this is really different from the way that most of the uh, strategy books are teaching us to do it today. What would he have done with this group? What what did he have in front of him? Well, these four fishermen, uh, Peter, he's out on the water a lot and he he is quite a, a, a dynamic, fearless personality. Maybe I could have Peter hijack a warship, I suppose, one of Caesar's warships and take over the world for good uh, through military strength. I mean, that would be one way that we would think that we might do it. Or or we do have that one politician there. Maybe I could get Simon to go and form a political lobby group and send them all down to Rome and picket the place until they do what we want them to do. See, I'm starting to meddle already. I'll do much more a little bit later. Um, Or or we do have a businessman there. He's got some money. It's it's gotten through theft and cheating and, 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 and greed. Uh, but, but Levi, Matthew might get us some money and we'll, we'll put together a marketing scheme. And through great marketing, we're going to be able to get people to, uh, to believe in Jesus. Now, I, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek because I want you to hear me carefully. I believe from the depths of my heart that when we become followers of Christ, he sends us into all arenas. I, I believe that he sends some of us into the military I believe that God sends some of his people into places of politics, uh, judicial work, the law. I really believe that Jesus sends some of his people into, into the workplace, into business, into retail sales. He sends us into public schools. He sends us into all sorts of places. But he doesn't do his work mainly through having those places become the power centers imposing his way upon the rest of the world. He does it by the salt and light in those places being different kinds of people. And I want to show it to you. Uh, You know, when you read a sermon like you have in the Sermon on the Mount, just to let you know, for those who don't read the Bible too often, uh, the sermon starts with chapter 5 of Matthew and it runs through about halfway through chapter 7. 
When, when you do what I did today and just pull out four verses, we need to look and see what went on before it. What did Jesus say before it and what did he say afterwards? And it really gives us great insight into how our lives should be distinctive that will turn us into salt and light in this, this world. What do you have just before Matthew chapter 5, verse 13? What you have there are the Beatitudes. I'll read a few of them to you. Blessed, it, it means the, the, the life that is lived the way that God would have it to live. The life that radiates shalom and joy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. What, what we're getting at are, are inner character traits. I see we already put it up here. So the first kind of person uh, that I, I wrote that, that is going to be salt and light wherever God puts us is a person who is growing to become a person of distinctive inner character. Uh, what does that inner character look like? I took some of these beatitudes, these blesseds, and put them into my own language. The kind of person Jesus is talking about is a person who is utterly dependent upon God. You see, rather than us being so self-centered, going into a place just knowing, I'll never fail, I can do it. We'll go into it with confidence, but it's not self-confidence. It's because God has sent us in the confidence that we go in his strength. We are utterly dependent upon him. We're poor in spirit. We're also people who mourn as we look at the condition of our world. Does it affect you that way? As you see people who are hurting, even if they brought it on themselves by their own sin, do you mourn because of the evil in the world and in our own lives? That kind of person is the kind of person that God uses in places. But that kind of person also loves what is good, loves what is right, wants it to happen, just longs for it, will work for it, hungers and thirsts after righteousness, which is what is right and what is good. But when we look out in the world and see people who aren't right and who aren't good from our perspective, we don't just cut them off. Whatever their difference may be, we don't just cut them off and have no relationship with them. No, we're people ready to, longing to show mercy. Mostly because God has shown us mercy, right? And we are the kind of people that when we see a world where people are fighting with one another in the workplace or in partisan kinds of relationships, we are willing to do that hard thing of stepping in and trying to bring people together and trying to help people to hear one another. Blessed are the peacemakers. And you know, people don't like peacemakers. Did you know? It sounds like such a good word. Have you ever actually tried to do it? Uh, people just want you to take their sides. They don't want peace to be made. And if you won't just take their sides, you often you're persecuted by both sides. So, so the kind of person that Jesus is talking about that he wants to send into the world is a person dependent upon him, a gentle, humble person, but who is courageous enough to love what is right and to pursue it, ready to show mercy when people seek it, ready to step in with boldness to try to bring about peace. And the result sometimes is verse 10. They are persecuted for what is right. See, what kind of person is salt and light? It's a person who is growing to be a different kind of person of inner character. That when the rest of the world is overreacting, we do not. When the rest of the people take what some people say and manipulate it against them, we refuse to do so. It's to that kind of person that Jesus then declares, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Is that clear? It's one of the things that should be happening in a community gathering like this, is that we should have that part of our inner being strengthened. We should become saltier and saltier kinds of people. 
because we've gathered our inner being should become more of what we would long for them to be and God has meant for them to be. The second thing, when you come to this after he has declared we're salt and the light, as you come to verse 17, Jesus, for the rest of the sermon, is going to take us back to the Old Testament and take us back to the way that God has said he has made us to live, similar to what we did earlier this year in the Ten Commandments. And you can read it. He says, you've heard said that people are misunderstanding what God has said, so let me tell you what God said. And he talks about all sorts of things. He, He talks about reconciling relationships. He talks about speaking about people. He talks about sexual purity, faithful in our marriages. He talks about loving enemies. He he talks about praying for people. He talks about generosity even when we don't have very much. So what he's talking about is the kind of person who comes to know what God has said about how life is supposed to be lived. And we become committed to living God's way rather than our own or rather than being conformed to the patterns of this world. And, And that kind of person, Jesus says, is salt and light in the world. Those two distinctive things or what should set us apart. People whose inner character is growing to become more like Christ. People whose external conduct is becoming more and more in conformity with what God has said in his word. It's that kind of person that God sends into the world. And through that kind of person, God does his incredible, preserving and light-bearing work. Which brings me to my third and final question. If this is true, that when we become followers of Jesus... He says we are salt and we are light. Is it possible to fail? And the way I put it, I think, is it possible to fail to be what we are? Does that make any sense to you? Is it possible that we who are salt and light can go into a place and not be very salty and not bear much light? And Jesus takes that on. In the very short passage that I read to you, he tells two ways we might fail. And I want you to think about these or make note of these. Number one, He says we might fail by being salt and light, but then failing to be involved in the world. He says a light, a city on a hill can't be hidden, and a light is never meant to be put under a bushel. Instead, it's supposed to be put up on a a lampstand where it actually does some good, and it brings some light into the world. Now, I'll tell you, you know that when you become a follower of Christ, So many times uh, you would rather sort of pull away from some difficult relationships, right? We'd all rather be in our comfort zones. Uh, And it's been the tendency of the church throughout the ages to sometimes want to to create these sort of monasteries away from the rest of people, what I call Christian ghettos. And especially in a larger church like Lake Avenue Church, it's so possible to do that. Everything Christian, a Christian scouting uh, Christian uh, body life work out only with Christians because the, maybe they don't sweat as bad as others. I, I'm not sure, but we, we we can possibly do that. Pull away from the public schools because there's so many things. Withdrawing from the world, the, the the Christian life was never meant to be lived that way. What what happens is when we gather in an evening like tonight, we should open up this word so that the light can be strengthened, so that the salt can be made uh, saltier. But the only way that we're going to be what God made us to be and to be effective at it is to be spread out through the world. I'm telling you, put all the light in one place and all we do is blind one another. Have a whole meal just with salt. How would you like that? Well, for some of you, we'll have you have just a big cup of salt for the dessert afterwards. 
And you know that that's not what salt is supposed to do. Light is supposed to shine into the darkness. And light and salt is supposed to touch that which it is to flavor, that which it is to savor. And so in the same way, you and I could withdraw from the difficult places, the difficult occupations of this world, but then we will fail to be what God called us to be, namely effective salt and light to this world. Now there's a second way that we can fail. We can fail by being involved, but in our involvement in the world, failing to be different from the people around us, living distinctive lives. And in fact, I've come to think that maybe this is a greater problem for us in Southern California. What do you think? I think that the notion that we should absolutely withdraw from society, not as much of that goes on as when I was a boy. Nowadays, of course, we should, we, should, we should relate to people in the world, but what happens is often we become much more shaped by those values than us going in as salt and light and making a positive difference there. We can fail, Jesus says, just as salt, if it loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing except to be thrown out and walked on. My mom always used to pray for me, keep my son from being good for nothing. So I've always wanted to be good for something. And in that, that's what Jesus is getting at. We can go into a place, but what has to happen is that inner character, the way we respond to life and the frustrations and the irritating people around us and our external conduct must be different from the world because salt is supposed to be different from the world that it is preserving and light must be different from the darkness that it is shining into. Now, there is what Jesus says. I think it's pretty clear and I hope I've been faithful to it. So I want to stop just for a few moments because I've been thinking and praying about this and just walk with me through this. See if this is wisdom. See if it's helpful to you at all. But I have wondered how these words of Jesus might be applied to us as Christians in the midst of this political campaign, which in so many ways is so troubling for me. Those of you who don't come from the U.S., you're probably more troubled than we are uh, about it. Uh, What should we do in this? I grew up in a time in which if you go to a church, people would say Christians should never be involved in politics. It never made a bit of sense to me. I read the Old Testament prophets like Amos and Micah and Jeremiah, and, and I, heard, I saw that they were always involved in those places, bringing messages to those places where decisions were made that affected the whole of their people. Now, since about the 70s, the, the pendulum was swung all the other way. And sometimes I get the idea that in some churches, the, the notion is if we take over the political arena, that's how the work of God is going to be done. Well, it doesn't seem to me that that's consistent either with the message of Jesus. I'm looking to see if anyone agrees with me since, since well, I see a few sort of pleasant looks on, on faces. I know, though, just in looking at this, that there are two ways that we can fail to be involved, uh, to, uh, to be salt and light in this arena. And the first is just that. We can withdraw from it altogether and just let it go. But in failing to be involved, we will not make the positive difference for goodness and justice that God has called us to have. I think we know for sure that God has left us here, and this is one part of the world where we have the opportunity to be involved. But the real question is, how? So I've written down four guidelines. And I know that we can't, I can't tell you who to vote for 
or, or and I'm not going to start a political rally, but I'm going to just try to give us some guidelines. And I found as I was speaking with folks from all over the world, they said these are as appropriate for us where we come from as they were here. See if you think they are. Number one, for those of us who are genuine followers of Jesus, we have a new ultimate allegiance. Just mark it down. Our ultimate allegiance is to what I call the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul said very, very clearly in Philippians 3.20 that we now have become citizens of heaven itself. So we have a new Lord over every other Lord in this world. We have a new king over every king. We have a new president over any president. And that is the one to whom we have an ultimate allegiance. We are Christians, followers of Christ. Now, in one sense, that helps us to have much more appreciation for imperfect governments, doesn't it? Because we don't expect them to be perfect. We don't think that there is any kind of government. That when I hear the politicians saying, we're going to get rid of greed in Wall Street, I wonder how on earth do they think a political structure can get rid of greed in the human heart? We don't expect that to be able to happen. So with realism, and hopefully with a lot of humility, uh, you and I live in this world fully aware that political change, no matter what propositions pass or fail, no matter who is elected or who is not, that those political structures in and of themselves will not usher in the kingdom of God. They will not strengthen our marriages. They will not get rid of self-centeredness and greed. They will not set us free from addictions because simple structures aren't going to change uh, the human heart. So you and I have an ultimate allegiance and that allegiance is to God. Uh, and that's the first guideline that I want to give you. Number two, the normal course of action in any country I think that God puts us in, the normal course of action is that a follower of Jesus will be a good citizen. So even though our allegiance to God should transcend any other loyalties in this world, have priority over any other allegiance in this world, in the normal course of life, we're guided by texts like Romans chapter 13. I'll just read you a part of it. You probably know it. Paul, writing to Christians in Rome of all places, the central political arena of the first century world, wrote it, writing to people in Rome, he said, listen to me, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority in this world except that which God has established. So the authorities that exist, the Bible says, have been established by God and they are there for your good. Now the implication of this simply gives to me a sort of rule of thumb that, that generally Christians in any country, in any nation will be known to be good citizens. People who can be trusted to, to, to follow the laws of the land. Now you might say, well Paul could write that he must have lived with a much better politic, a much better government than we live with. Do you know anything about first century Rome? It was probably the most violently anti-Christian government in the history of the world. It's the one under which Paul himself died. And yet he would say this about it. Now, again, listen carefully. There's so many nuances with all of this. But listen carefully. Um, there are times in the book of Acts, Peter talks about it, when we have to say, I must this time obey God rather than men. And it was a, a, a law that he was talking about at that particular time. But when we have to do that, I always say to people, make sure that it is a crystal clear contradiction between God's law and the laws of your land. Because the general rule of thumb, followers of Jesus, we should be good citizens in those places where God puts us. Number three, I think that our involvement 
and here I'm talking mostly to us as U.S. Christians, our involvement in the political process is a stewardship. Do you know what I mean by that? It's, it's, it's an opportunity, a, a gift given to us that not all of our brothers and sisters in the history of the church or even in the world now have had. You know, so many followers of the Lord have lived in uh, monarchies, uh, very anti-Christian, totalitarian, even atheistic governments. We're given no opportunity to participate, but we live in this sort of strange opportunity that we have here in this nation of, by, and for the people, and we're a part of the of, by, and for. And so what that brings with it, with all of the confusion about how all this actually works, is, is not only, uh, it's not only true that we are allowed to participate in a political process, we're expected to. And so as I look at it, it's like so many other areas. It is an opportunity for us to go into those places and be salt and light. Uh, so many have said, but I don't like any of the candidates and any of the propositions. Then I say, but we still must make the best judgment that we can and be led by God's spirit and wisdom as best we can discern it. Because number four, there was one thing demanded of good stewardship. It's, it's 1 Corinthians 4.2. One, there is one thing that is required of a steward, that that steward be found, do you know the word? Faithful. Faithful to what? So if we have a stewardship, an opportunity to be involved where we have been put in the time in which we live, uh, I just jotted these down. Faithful to learning the issues as best we can. We only get sound bites from the media sometimes. Sometimes I wonder, how do I learn them? Investigating objectively the positions at stake in the election. I also think a part of the stewardship is doing what we're doing right now, is gathering to, to listen again to this word and to try to think through, does it have any bearing upon the decision that I have to make right now? And then as we gain clarity, as we listen to one another, pray with one another, seek what is good and true and right with one another, then to speak, uh, surely to vote, and even for some of us, to go into that political, political arena ourselves. We can fail, and one of the ways would be to have a stewardship given to us and withdraw from it. Salt and light don't do that. There's a second way to fail. All right. We fail by failing to be involved, and we fail by failing to be... We're there, but we're no different from anybody else. All right, what should be different? Well, it, it, it's consumed by the, those inner character traits and, and, and our behavior, but I have written down just a few words that I've, I passed it out this morning and didn't have too many people yell at me. So it's because I told them not to, that they didn't. But I'll tell you, as we engage in this political debate and as we listen how it's done, I think there are some ways that we as followers of Jesus might be distinctively different, don't you? What ways? One, I, I encourage us to speak graciously to one another especially to those who disagree with us. Do you know what happens when you actually give a, give a hearing to somebody who disagrees with you? You often gain a hearing yourself. Do you know what happens when you give a hearing to someone very different from you? You gain a wider perspective. You begin to see things you hadn't seen before. As long as we sort of isolate ourselves just to be with people who agree with us fully, we can begin to think that this is the only way we should look at the world. So I just encourage us to be a community that speaks truthfully but always graciously. Second, I encourage us to be a place that treats people kindly. Those who disagree with us with real respect. In that same Sermon on the Mount, 
You get over there to chapter 5, verse 43, and what Jesus says, you have to at least tolerate your enemy. No, it's this, this unbelievable command that he gives us to love enemy. I had uh, this morning, I had a, a German man come up to me and said, I'll tell you, that's almost impossible for me. And his wife said, it is for him. And uh, I said, I'll tell you, uh, it, it's so much easier for me to get up here and preach to you and te- talk to you about this than to live it. But I know this is our calling, our calling uh, to see all people as God does and then to treat them with, with kindness and with respect. You know what I've learned? That people can be on the left or the right politically and still be mean people. Have you noticed that? People can be red or blue or all shades of purple in between. We can still be immoral and still be dishonest. Now listen, you and I, if we're going to name the name of Christ and represent him as salt and light wherever he puts us, must always be people who treat people with kindness, not with meanness, and people of honesty and integrity. And I call upon us to treat people with that kind of kindness. The third thing that I want us to do, and I'm I'm going to apply this mostly to our own inner community, I want us to see people with the eyes of Christ. You've heard me say that almost every message I ever preach, right? God, can I see people as you do? All people as so valuable that Christ gave his life for them. Can we see with the eyes of Christ? And I think particularly with our brothers and sisters within a, a church fellowship who may disagree with us. I wonder, is it possible that the larger Lake Avenue church family could be a place where we could talk deeply and objectively about some of these matters instead of just having all that emotion. How could you possibly think that? And suddenly we're you know, right at one another's noses or faces. I think that if we saw the Spirit of God in one another and, and know that we, we should try to get along here because we're going to be together throughout eternity. So, okay, let's just calm down. And, and if we could see one another that way, I think that at least our our fellowship within a community like the warehouse would be so different from the rest of the world. Where even in the debates, it always feels like you're sort of manipulating what anybody has said so long ago and then throwing it right back in their faces that we try to listen objectively and fairly and treat people as God has treated us. And then as we gain clarity about things, those things that are good and right, we should act with And I think it's a combination, it's a blend of courage and humility. Now, I've been thinking about the issues that stand in front of us, and here I know I may come to some things that you disagree with. Certainly people last night and this morning did, but I'll tell you the things guiding me. And uh, as your pastor, they might be helpful to you. As as we face a number of major issues, I had a whole page of these and uh, boiled it down to just a, a couple as I think about the, the attempt to apply what Scripture is teaching me to the issues facing me, one of the things that is so clear to me right now is that the Bible is unequivocal in teaching us that a marriage is to be between a man to a woman. Uh, in the creation account in Genesis, it's there. When Jesus taught in Matthew 19, it's there. And, and even though people keep saying, well, it's just because you're a pastor, just a religious issue, it's not just. It is a biblical issue. But it's not just that. Uh, Students of culture and students of history, you know that virtually every society has had the same at least basic definition of that fabric, that part of society. So it seems to me the decision that was made in our Supreme Court flies in the face not just of biblical teaching, but of historic and cross-cultural 
understanding. And for me, that's guiding me, and I think it might guide some of us with regard to Proposition 8 that stands in front of us. A second one that's clear to me is that when I read the Old Testament from the beginning to the end, it's clear to me that any good government should care for and should provide for the poor and the struggling and the one that feels marginalized and outcast within its boundaries. Uh, any government, any king was required to care for at least three kinds of people in ancient Israel. Do you know what they were? There were the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners, the ones who had come from outside the country into the country. Widows, orphans, and foreigners. What do those three people have in common in the ancient world? They were the three groups of people that were left out of the social support system, which was almost exclusively within the family. And so these people were without family. And so that's where government had to care and, and be compassionate and step in. Any good government, all the kings were asked to do this. And if you don't think that's true, I just want you to read Micah and read Amos. And then I think you'll repent and come back and say, no, let's go at this again. I, I think that any good government will be one that, as I look for it, I say, where are the people who really care for those who may be left out of so much of, of society, who care for those who are struggling and those who feel excluded from society and try to work hard to bring justice with mercy and humility to people. That's another area that's clear. It's hard to know actually who does that well, but that's a consideration that's at the front of my mind. And another is this, and, and this is perhaps even more complicated, and yet I don't know how we can get away from biblical teaching without seeing it, that any good government has a responsibility on one side to restrain what is evil within its boundaries, but also to promote what is good. You know, any authority in our world is supposed to do this. Those of you parents with, with children, one of the responsibility of a good parent is to try to make sure that we restrain evil in our home and we promote and reward what is good. In a church, a, a part of spiritual leadership is that. Do, do you know that? That where things are wrong, to, to restrain it and to offer hope and always to promote and reward what is good. Now, I'll tell you, it brings up all sorts of debates. What is good and what is evil? How do you restrain it? How do you promote what is good? But it is a worthwhile debate to have. And there is one verse that I keep in front of me all the time because it is a verse that is written to all of those who hold positions of authority and power. It's found in the book of Micah, leaders who had utterly failed. It is written not just to the leaders of a theocracy like Israel, but to all leaders because it says this in Micah 6.8, God has shown you, oh, and the word is Adam, Adam, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. In fact, all humanity, by the way God has treated people, he has shown us what is good, and he shows us what he requires. And what does he require? Uh, to act with justice, to love mercy. I talked to you about that, didn't I? Uh, to be willing to forgive to do almost anything to get back into relationship again, to love it, to love coming back into relationship with somebody with whom relationship has been broken and always to walk humbly with God. One of my prayers has been, Father, help me to see which candidates in this imperfect world more fully embody that justice with mercy and humility than others because those are the kind of candidates that I think we should stand behind and, and support. I don't know if that's helpful to you. I was talking with this with John Lewis, the head of our ministry council, our elders, and he wrote this back to me. So I decided if he's going to write it back to me, I'll quote him. He said, since we know 
that the ultimate solution to the human condition is not to be found in political action but in Christ. We, and he's talking about us being salt and light, must consider how our actions, political and otherwise, either bring others closer to the gracious, heart-changing relationship to Christ or else drive them further away from it. I think there is real wisdom in this. Well, those are some of my thoughts about our distinctiveness as salt and light in that one part of our world. Now I'm about to bring my message to a close because I want to broaden it to where you are. I I have learned, uh, you know, I've just been here a year, but I, I have learned that the people who are part of the warehouse and the Lake Avenue Church are in almost every avenue of life, almost every place. It's a part of what I love about this place. This morning after I spoke, I had people who were involved uh, in the arts, people who were involved uh, deeply in the media. I had, uh, as I mentioned, judges in our courts uh, come up and talk with me. Uh, Attorneys and educators come up. God has put us, and maybe you are in one of those places that right now is a very difficult place for you. Sometimes that difficult place can be your family. It might be the the school where you are. You might even be a place where you feel like you are the only, you're the only Christian in that place. And what difference can you possibly make in that place? I just want to remind you of these two images that Jesus used. It doesn't take very much salt uh, to make a difference in the food. And when there's a lot of darkness, it doesn't take very much light to transform that darkness into something that makes it possible for some people to see. God sometimes places us in really tough places, doesn't he? And when he sends us to those places, he declares to us what he declares to them. It might be that if you're in one of those really difficult places now, I'm not telling you you have to stay there all the time, but at least for now it might be that you are there specifically because God loves the people of that place so much that he wants to send some of his salt and his light into that place to give to them some hope. Is it possible that you are sent into that place to offer hope? I pray that if it is, that you will grab that opportunity, grab that stewardship. And I pray that at least you can hear the words of this text transcending the ages. Because if he could make that difference through these 12 people then surely we who have gathered here at the warehouse can hear the words of Jesus speaking to us saying, you, you are the salt of this earth and you are the light of the world so that when we leave this place we will go and touch lives with the hope of Christ and shine to his glory so that people will see us but give praise to our Father who is in heaven. May I lead us in prayer at the end of the service? I would like us to have a few moments to bring these two matters. We are salt and light if we're followers of Jesus. These two matters to God. Jeremy, if you would come. Uh, After each of these first two, I'm going to have Jeremy lead us in the singing of the Michael W. Smith, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy on us. First, one of the ways that we can fail is by failing to be involved. Uh, think and pray about the place where God has put you now. Is it a place you just want to get out of? Is it a place where even though you're there as a Christian, you've never even let people know that you are? 
Is there any responsibility that you need to give to him and ask him to give you strength and help? Take a few moments to tell him that wherever you are, you want to be that salt and light that he would have you to be. Have a moment of prayer and then I'll come back. Thank mm-hmm. you.